Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Kurt Schilling Baseball Show, episode 30. Bill, how are we looking? 30 shows in, and to me, it's gone by like we did it the first one yesterday. It's been fun, for sure. It's been fun. Although, we're going to start this one off with some news that isn't so fun. If you know me or known me, you, you know how much I, I like pitching. I like to watch pitching. I like to watch good pitchers. The day he was drafted, the day he made the big leagues, I said that Steven Strasburg was going to have miserable time staying healthy. Uh, mechanics... Stuff like that. Punch out 14 is first. I'll never forget that first appearance. Scott Boris, here's some numbers just to understand this $241,802.72. That is what Steven Strasburg got paid per inning to pitch during his career. $355,450,000 is how much he got paid. 113 and 62 uh, with a 324 ERA, got a World Series. I think if you delve into the financials behind a World Series, I think that in many markets, the World Series can pay for more than this contract in and of itself with the additional revenues, with the uh, you know merch sales and all the things that go with that. I don't know about Washington and the Washington market, but unfortunately, he's down with severe nerve damage. Uh, I would be Stunned if we ever see him again, based on what I'm hearing. There's 105 million in outstanding pay. That's in that 355 million total, by the way. And one of the things I know a lot of people always talk about, oh, you know, the club's got insurance. Well, they didn't have it on him because of the astronomical fee it would be. So they're going to basically have to uh, pay him. And if you remember, this is a franchise looking to sell. So they've got what you'd call $105 million in dead money on the books. In equating or, or evaluating this is, you know, is this one of the worst deals? No, I, I think it's a bad deal. I thought it was a bad deal the day they did it. I thought the signing bonus was insane. I thought all of it was insane. But they won a World Series and he was uh, he was the MVP of that World Series. So I do remember, though, I think them shutting him down the one year when they were in the driver's seat might have cost them another World Series, which definitely would have paid for this. But anyway, I think we've seen the last of him, unfortunately, and that's that stinks because this kid was a supreme talent. When for, you talk about his mechanics, Kurt, what about it led well, you to um, believe? So most pitchers, if you uh, when most pitchers break their hands and take their hand back, the closer to your head your hand is when it's as far back as it's going. So if you think about it, you know when I pitched, my hand came back here. If you look at any still shots of him, his hand would come here. The physical strain of getting your arm from here to turn to go through is not nearly as difficult here as it is to here. Because you're talking about a, a hand that's moving at thousands of degrees a second through the throwing area. When I do it from back here, I've created a lever in the front to pull the back through and, and it's natural, as natural as it can be. When I do it here, I've got to do everything in a very short, and I use this analogy. So when kids, you can always tell what kind of ball a kid used to throw when they were young. When kids use a ball that's too light, they throw that Steven Strasburg. They take their arm back really short and they'll throw it really short. It'll be a very short motion. When kids use a heavier ball, they'll bring it back and they'll bring it back with the hand up, which is bad. When you use a ball that's adjusted weight-wise for a kid, his natural motion will be to bring it back here and then it'll rotate up. So guys that bring their ball back and their hands are up or guys that bring their the ball back and their hands are short. It's almost like a, they call it a W, right? This is, if you look at the way my arms go, it's a W. You want to be back here and hand down. If you look at it, like I said, if you look at any shot, you'll see his he's this way. He's always this way. And they're called short armors because their arm moves in a very short area, small, short range of motion to throw. And it's, it's incredibly, first of all, it's incredibly hard to command the ball. You know, kudos to him. But secondly, it's just, an enormous amount of strain on the elbow and on the shoulder as well. And Mark Pryor was the same way. Everybody talked about him coming out of college with these phenomenal mechanics, and that was crap. His mechanics were – he was a short armor. Both phenomenal pitchers, and, and 
you know, the thought of what they would have been had they been able to bring the ball back far was is kind of scary because it allows you more velocity, much more accuracy, and all the things that go with pitching. So another pitcher, Max Scherzer, is mad. Here's his quote. Why can't the umpires have discretion in that situation to allow eight normal warm-up pitches? Why do we have to be so anal about this to have the clock shoved in everybody's face and try to keep out every little second that's going into the game? And he's commenting on the pitch clock. And apparently there's a rule between innings around the pitch clock. You know, uh, Trip Gibson was the umpire that day. Trip basically told Gibson that the, the, the league has mandated they strictly enforce the clock, but they have leeway. They do have the ability. So the eight warm-up pitches were always a very big deal to me because I had a sequence and a method and, and every inning it was the same. Two fastballs in, two fastballs out, curveball, slider, split, one from the stretch. Just a routine I eventually, you know, for thousands of innings, that's what I did. And the rule says I get my eight warm-up pitches. And there were guys who tried to, you know, hey, that's enough, that's enough. But no, I'm getting my warm-up pitches. And I don't know what the rule book now says about those eight, but Scherzer's mad. And I agree with that. I agree with the fact that you should get your eight warm-up pitches. And the problem comes when the catcher hits last in the National League, uh, or actually both leagues now. The catcher hits last, he's usually late getting out there, and your backup catcher comes out and takes a couple warm-up pitches waiting for your backup catcher to get on, on the field. What you can't do, and I think we've learned in the past, is the you can't give the umpires leeway. You can't because when you give them leeway, it's very easy for them to take out personal beefs. And they do because they're human and they're like that. Some umpires will enforce it for other guys. Not, guys, I, I never had an issue with that in sense because guys, umpires knew I work fast anyway. So they weren't going to have a problem with me getting my eight warm up pitches outside of, you know, standard uh, or the norm. But it's a big deal. You know, I wonder if, and I, I don't doubt. Bill, that there's a metric. The league is ha has a metric, and they're actually one of the stats behind umpires now is going to be time of game, right? Which is yeah. that should be no metric anywhere on the table when you're talking about umpire performance. I guarantee it is. That makes sense. I, you know, the two minute thing from end of last at bat, the half inning before to the start of the first batter, it just with the catcher batting last, there's, I understand what you're saying about leeway, but in the realm right. of things, I do believe that eight pitches should be allowed no matter what. Right. It could be, why not make the rule when the catcher hits last, it's four minutes or three minutes or something stupid. Right. Just yeah. Avoid so, this. But don't give them leeway. Just tell them right. this is what it is. I'm not going to lie. I do find it somewhat curious that you remember Scherzer did a lot of stuff with the pit talk during spring training, testing and pushing the limits and the boundaries, trying to figure it out, how he could use it. But I do find it somewhat curious and odd that there are what? Let's just say 400 some pitchers in the big leagues. And that's the only story we get. Although maybe somebody else is, but they're not a big enough name for people to talk about it. But I doubt that. We've been talking about the Rays since the season started and that they're real. As you guys have pointed out, Bill and, and uh, the crack staff, John Cal, uh, they have a weakness. They're above 700. They have the largest run differential baseball. That's fluctuating now. Uh, the Rangers are playing around with that. They lead everything, but they have one glaring weakness. Their 4.56 bullpen ERA is the sixth worst in baseball. It generates fewer strikeouts than any other bullpen in the league. 17.5% strikeout rate compared to 23.9% for the rest of the league. No single culprit in there. I don't think that there is, a, I don't think it's a coincidence that you're probably looking at the most worked and used bullpen in baseball. Kevin Cash uses his bullpen to a sabermetrician's dream. You know, I went back and looked at all 61 box scores. 19 of the 61 games were started by a reliever. Yeah, they do the the, the starter thing and the, and the opener thing uh, more than anybody. It also cost them a World Series, too. Don't yeah. sleep on 
pulling Blake Snell in that game was the height of insanity. Man, it did. It cost him a World Series. Five of the last six years, they've led the league in innings pitch, their bullpen. And the problem is, and we talked about this, you know, when, you, when you're when you a team that manages and runs through your bullpen sabermetrically, uh, you have to have a bullpen that's 12 to 15 relievers deep, counting AAA, because you're not, those guys are going to break down and you're going to have guys back and forth. Well, they um, just lost Pete Fairbanks, who was their closer. Yep. And and again, this is going to happen. Uh, they lead the majors in innings pitched, uh, 221. Outs recorded per reliever per game four and pitches per reliever per game at 22, which means they're using the hell out of these guys. And that's fine uh, if you've got the depth, but you have to know going in that, that instead of, uh, you know, they have what, three starters probably. They use openers in multiple other ways. So you carry a 12, 13 men staff. You're going to have to have 10 to probably 15 relievers that you can afford to bring back and forth in AAA. But let's go back and, and listen to these numbers. The ERA right now for the Tampa is 4.56, their bullpen. Since 2013, these are the last 10 World Series champion bullpen ERAs. 4, 4.84, 4.30, 3.51, 4.42, 5.31, 4.26, 5.61, 2.84, the Dodgers at 2020, 4.43, and last year, uh, Astros at 3.06. Average ERA is 4.23. And like you said, their closer just went on the DL. Yeah. Pete Fairbanks just went on the DL, so... That's going to present a problem. Meanwhile, just as a side note, the Orioles bullpen ERA is 3.15, which is astoundingly good. And they're legit and they're real. The Yankees, Indians, and Astros are all better than them, but they're the only teams, which is, again, pretty amazing. So, no, they don't win the World Series if they don't fix that problem. Maybe they make the playoffs. You can make the argument, too, that unfortunately – well, not unfortunately, but let's just say you have four starters and you have nine relievers. When you go to the postseason, those nine relievers become five. Four of those guys don't even pitch. So you're, they, it's called a shortened bullpen. They shorten the bullpen. So you ha- and that's why, you know, I'm, I don't know if you guys remember way back in 2004, it seemed like Keith Folk threw 100 innings in October. He pitched every night. He pitched two innings, three innings, two innings. Um, but your bull- the people that you go to in your bullpen goes from being nine to five in very short order because there are guys who, four or five guys who you're not going to give the ball to. Those are the guys generally you have during the regular season that will eat the innings that you don't want the, the the top shelf guys. And that's where you work your way in the bullpen, right? If you have a 10-man bullpen, when you come to the bullpen, for the most part, you're the eighth or ninth or tenth guy. And as you pitch high leverage innings and improve and do the things, you move up to the front end of the line. And that front end of the line for some teams is five, six, seven deep, whereas the front end of the line for some teams might be two deep. But in the postseason, you generally have – three, four, five guys max who are going to get almost all the innings out of your bullpen. So, you know, that would be, I'd be curious to see and compare across the great teams, you know, not just the bullpen areas, but the bullpen areas for the top four guys in each bullpen, because that's more relevant, much more relevant to the postseason. And you know what? I said this early in the year, and I believe that this kid, Luis Arias for Florida, who uh and that that's a pretty amazing stat. What was it? 81 and 10, Bill? 81 and 11. 80 Today, base hits, 11 Ks. He has 81 hits and 11 strikeouts. And on Saturday's 12-1 win, he had five hits, five RBIs, raising his average to 390, which makes him and Justin Turner in the last 10 years the only two players to be at 390 or better after 200 at bats. Runs like this transcend team market. This is a, this is what makes baseball so awesome. When Pete Rose was on his hitting streak, when um, DiMaggio was on, the whole baseball world stood up and watched, including players. 
they follow this stuff and the nation follows this stuff and the media pushes this narrative and the story because it's just like when a pitcher's on a, when Earl Hershiser was on his amazing consecutive scoreless inning streak. Yeah. Yeah. He was with the Dodgers that, that, that Luis is with the Marlins. I don't think matters. Everybody will be following. And then what you'll have is he'll get on a little hitting streak and, and they'll start cutting into his at bats because of it. If, if 400 can be done, this is the kind of hitter that's going to do it. Generally what ha- the unfortunate thing is you kind of have to not be a healthy player because if you look back at, at uh, 1980, when George Brett hit 390, uh, part of the reason he did was because I, I think he might have hit 390 otherwise, but he had fewer at-bats than most of the rest of the league because he was hurt and out. So if you're going to get all your at-bats, which Ted Williams did it, when the last day of the season, I believe, hitting 400, and they had a doubleheader, and he refused to sit, and he ended up hitting 406, or he was hitting 402 or something like that. So <laughs> I believe if it can be done, it's going to be done by this kid. And I would love to see it. Real quick note. Uh, yeah, I do want to actually mention this. Marcelo Zuna of the uh, Braves got pulled for not hustling. Kudos to Brian Snitker for doing it. Uh, he had a ball deep center, ended up on first base, settling for a 415-foot single. Watched the ball uh, and then got pulled. And Snitker said what's true. I guarantee he feels worse than I do for having to take him out. First of all, that makes him a rarity for the simple fact that this day and age, it seems like the clowns run the circus in many ways. That's certainly not the case in, in Atlanta. And probably one of the reasons why they're as good as they are and as consistent as they are. In addition to having Ronald Acuna, who might be the best player on the planet right now, injuries to pitching. But when you do stuff like this, you don't do it in a silo. Everybody sees. Everybody knows. I remember when and- it happened to Andrew Jones. I'll never forget it. I-, I got the chance to sit next to Andrew on a trip to Japan for the All-Star, Major League All-Stars, and he said it was the most embarrassing thing that had ever happened to him. Bobby Cox pulled him out of a game in the middle of a game for nonchalanting a ball, and it never happened again. And that's how you guarantee it doesn't happen. Because if it happens again, then you've got a guy who you know is going to be an issue. Because those kind of things will always find a way to rear their ugly head in the worst possible moments. October, one game up in the division. You got a guy in, you know, on in scoring position on second base. He nonchalants back to the bag and, and doesn't pay attention, doesn't score on a hit, and you lose a game and you miss the playoffs. But those are the kind of things that happen. And that's why you don't allow them to happen again. All right. And the Braves are going to be playing important games in October. Yes, every game they're going to. Uh, top five list, but I don't want to get to the top five list, which we're going to close the show with before I mention the fact that uh, an icon uh, in the game, Roger Craig, passed away at the age of 93. He was the uh, the split-fingered fastball, which without it, I don't think I have a big league career. Never got a chance to play for him or be on a staff with him. Did get to know him and meet him a little bit. Phenomenal man, kind man, big man, too. A ton of careers were revitalized. I, I bet the number's in the thousands because he taught the split-fingered fastball, and to this day, it's the easiest pitch to teach and easiest pitch to throw in baseball next to the fastball. Rest in peace, Roger. And what an amazing life and amazing career. Three championship teams. So anyway, uh, top five infielders I played with. Top five infielders. And, and I think somebody, and there might be a name on here that people are shocked to hear because they don't know that I played with him, but I did. So, and the top five, I'm going to give you in somewhat of an order. I think these guys were all at the same level defensively. Scott Rowland, which is a no-brainer, third baseman, gold glover, going into the Hall of Fame for all the reasons he should be. Cal Ripken, who I played with uh, early in my career in Baltimore, as fundamentally sound as anybody I ever played with. Pokey Reese, Orlando Cabrera, and Rico Bronia. Pokey Reese was his, and Orlando Cabrera were two... They were special. Both of them were special. In a day and age of Omar Vizquel, 
And a lot of the gold glove shortstops, these two guys were right up there at the top. Pokey might have been, he might have been the best of all of them. It didn't matter where you put him, the guy could play. Uh, Orlando was very underrated defensively. And Rico was the best fielding first baseman I ever played with. He was a shortstop, left-handed shortstop playing first base. My honorable mention list, guys that were horribly underrated or guys that were great that I played with briefly. Craig Council, I thought in 2003, he might have had one of the best defensive seasons I've ever seen. Uh, when Matt Williams went down, he played third base. Kevin Euclid, surprise, surprise, at third and first. Outstanding defensive player, very consistent, very fundamental very underrated because of the whole offensive thing with him. Everybody was focused on that, and he was a very good defensive player. Mark Grace at first base, left-handed shortstop playing first base, and you always judge them by him and the next guy, J.T. Snow. I played with J.T. very briefly at the end of my career and the end of his career in Boston. Those three, uh, Snow, Bronia, and Grace, were all three left-handed literal shortstops in the sense that they would throw the ball anywhere, anytime, on the dime, on the nose. You could always count on them turning the 3-6-3. Three, three. They were – insanely good first baseman uh and, and it's a horribly underrated defensive position uh and then the last guy on my list and certainly not the least i'm sure i've forgotten guys uh, i d- didn't include catchers in this but matt williams uh matt williams uh and, and ken caminiti were probably two either one of those so i always said if it hits their glove it's an out and it was matt i never saw matt williams drop a ball sure as sure-handed as anybody ever played with ken ken was the same way uh, and I thought of Ken the other day. I just saw a highlight uh, where Ken made a diving catch to his left and threw to first base sitting on his butt and threw a chest-high strike across the infield from the back of his butt leaning back. He was sensational defensive third baseman with a rocking arm. Matt was the same way. Matt was uh, could catch everything he touched, he caught, and his throws were usually chest-high on the money. But Rico was just a cut above. He could do things at first base that were... Again, I put uh, Rico, Orlando Cabrera, Pokey Reese, uh, JT Snow in the same category athletically. They were all the same. They were just as good as athletes as the shortstop. They were just left-handed first baseman. And again, first base and, and left field is not – or right field is not where you stick defensive liabilities. First base is one of the most important positions on the field. The amount of runs a first baseman can save during a season is astronomical. And I know because I watched guys dig balls out of the dirt that had no business being dug out. And I played with a lot of other really good defensive players. I didn't put any catchers in here just because that's a different conversation. Oh, yeah. Uh, At some point, we're getting to top five catchers in your career. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll do outfielders and we'll do guys like top five fielders I played against. Um, So that's the show for today. We found it fun, informative, and uh, outkick.com. You can find the show and then you can also find us on Spotify. Like and follow and subscribe and we'll keep doing some fun stuff more lists to come so you guys have a great week bill i'll see you uh, on friday my friend we will be there all right